In this episode, we'll learn Norm and Shaggy's hottest sex secrets for attracting wild, willing babes. Yeah, right. Like that's going to work. You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Today on TopCast, we're doing a very special interview. Uh, I could not do this over the phone. This gentleman did not want to do a phone interview, which is fine. So I drove out to Chicago to interview him at his office. I worked at Bally Williams uh, during the 1990s and developed the software for Twilight Zone, a very classic Williams pinball game, um, Demo Man, and the Red and Ted Roadshow. He uh, also uh, became the head of the... Uh, programming department for both pinball and gaming and uh, has some interesting insights into that whole 1990s era of, uh, of pinball special guests special guests special guests special guests so we're taking top cast on the road to chicago to talk to ted estes in his office at cisco systems about his days in the 1990s at williams and valley pinball so I'd like to welcome Ted Estes. Give me the inside. How did you, how did you get started in the whole pinball thing? Where, where's the roots here? It's it's a long story, and it and it's little bits and pieces over the years. A friend of mine in high school had a really old game, and I can't remember the name of it, um, in his basement. An EM, I assume. An old EM, and the was the paint was all worn off, and uh, I would go over in the afternoon and play sometimes with him. And uh, I wasn't very good at it, but they had played it to the point where you know they could get the skill shot at the top to get the rollovers. They had little pencil marks on the on the, oh, on the on shooter the, gauge. On the shooter gauge, right? So, so you know this is where you pull it out in order to get it into that right, slot, sort right. of thing. And I always thought it was pretty interesting. Um, my dad was an electrical engineer, and I, you know, I I did a lot of um, you know electrical circuit type stuff and things. I had some interest in that. And I thought it'd be fun to have something like a, a pinball machine just to work on, not necessarily you know to play, but to you know to 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 work on. Um, and then it was years later in college when I first discovered um, the solid state games like um, Firepower and Black Knight, which just blew me away in terms of how much fun they were with the. So tracks. really, you had no play experience between this EM and, and right. that college Firepower. Right. And you went to Purdue, of course. Right. right. Where I went. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so I spent um, I spent all all my lunch money and all my lunch time um, one semester playing Black Knight at the Union. Uh, well, I wasn't at the Union actually. So a little uh, a couple of years. Well, right around that time, there was um, I was working for the E department doing uh, preventive maintenance on the printers in order to make pocket, at Purdue at Purdue to make money. And another person who worked for the E department um, was way into video games and pinball games, and he bought a Black Knight brand new in the box. Really? Yeah. And at, at around the same time, or maybe a couple years later, another friend of mine who I had worked with at, at, at Purdue and who actually got me that job. Um, you mean at the double E department? At the double E department, who um, who eventually came to work with me at Williams. His name is Tom Uban. Ah. Um, Tom went to Purdue too, then. Yeah. He and I know each other from 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 Purdue. 
Um, he bought a Tempest game, which was like the one video game that I've ever right. liked. I'm not big on video games except for that one. And I kept thinking, wow, it's really neat to have a, an actual arcade game of your own. And it right. always had that sort of little bug. So somebody else bought that Black Knight from that person. I heard about it. And then that person had it for a couple of years. And Tom said, hey, Kurt's selling that old Black Knight. You're interested in it. And I bought it. Why didn't Why didn't Tom want it? Uh, I don't know. He pro he's probably living in an apartment. And didn't have room. All right. And so I drove down and uh, met met uh, Kurt halfway. Bought the Black Knight for three hundred bucks. This was nineteen eighty eight. Was it still in nice shape? It was still in nice shape. It was still, um, yeah, it was still pretty good good shape. Um, I mean, cabinet was beautiful. Playfield had a, uh, somewhere, and, uh, and but it needed some rebuilding, you mm -hmm. know, like uh, the flipper mechs were held together with duct tape and right. and uh, cable ties and stuff, and and that started me on my long um, trek for, oh, can you still get parts for something like this, you know, and uh, I ended up rebuilding that game and getting the bug. I started buying, you know, once you start one game, you, you, know, right, you yeah. have to have more. So we, yeah. so when did the divided by ten scoring thing come in? Was this in this era? Uh, or is this much later? I'm trying to think, when did I do that? Just to explain, just some people don't yeah. know, is that you've done, you've modified the round code for nearly all the System 6 games to do the scoring divided by ten, so when they roll over, they don't roll over. Yeah, after I got the Black Knight, I went searching for a firepower, and it's only a six-digit game. Right. And I probably had it set up too easy, but it was frustrating that I would roll over the score. Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. It was System 6 games, then, right. not, not right. System 7. Right. System 7 games have, have, have seven-digit seven scoring. Yeah, right. so it's not necessary. So I had this idea, you know, the, the least significant digits, always a zero. Right. Uh, it's not used for anything, so why not just divide all the scores by ten? And... Um, so I started trying to disassemble the code on there and, and just didn't have very much luck. I guess nowadays people have better tools for doing that kind of thing because they're doing all kinds of fancy rewriting of rules on... on well, there's only a couple and, guys doing that. Yeah. And they also have pin main so you can do all the tests without burning EEPROMs. Right. And you can you know run it on your run it on your machine. So, yeah, you're right. They do. They have a better tool set. So this was this was after '88 when you yeah. well after yeah it was probably about 1990 it was probably about 1990 oh so it wasn't that far it off. wasn't that far off I was doing it in my spare time at uh, at work using um, you know a 386 computer that uh, you know not everybody had PCs back then right um, to to work on and where were you working uh, I was working at AT and T okay and uh, so I couldn't uh, ra rather than Try to figure out how to disassemble all the code. Instead, I built a simulator that ran the code on the PC. It simulated the instruction set and um, put the lamp matrix up on the screen and put the score digit scores up on the you screen. You made your own pin main. So I did a pin main sort of thing, right? Hmm. Um, although it's very low tech. It was only text. And oh, really? Yeah. You know. <laughs> so you know, and you, I had a little file where you put in the names of the solenoids and the lamps and stuff. And it would fit it on a you know an 80 column by 24 line right. display on the PC, and you could watch the lights blink and stuff, and you'd hit keys on the keyboard to simulate key switches. 
Huh. And then I could set breakpoints and things in the in the code. Right. And so I discovered where was where were the scores kept. Set a breakpoint on when they got uh, modified. Took a look at the code that modified it, and then found a way to do um, to do the divide by ten. And luckily, the way that the score the the score numbers are internally um, kept were um, a number and a, and a uh, uh, well, it's a mantissa and an exponent. So it's a number and a power of ten. Mm -hmm. So all I had to do was change the power of ten. Change the power of ten, and I got my ten scoring. And I keyed off of the setting for the um, for the match display. You turn off match, and it turns on the right. divide by ten because, because match, the match isn't going to work anymore. Right, right, it'd be one yeah. out of a hundred instead of one out of a ten at right. that point in order to, to do it. So you're you're all good. So I mean, were you good at the disassembly thing? Oh yeah. Uh, my background was um, in uh, microprocessors and programming, and and, uh, and in fact, I had been programming that same microprocessor in high school um, hmm. that's used in uh, in the early Bally and Williams games. My dad. Used so the 6800 series, you yeah, were pretty yeah. familiar with. My dad used to work for Motorola, and hmm. when I was a Junior in uh, in high school, he brought home an evaluation board for the 6800. Had a little hex keypad on it <clears throat> and a display, and um, and I I made a little um, external port with a bunch of LEDs on it that I could blink and stuff, and All I right. made little programs and, and so I was I was. How would you enter code into that? Well, you'd do it by hand in hex, and and you'd have to hand assemble it because there All was right. no assembler. So I'd, I'd write the program out and then hand assemble it and then type it in and test right. it. And then once you got it done, it had a serial port for dumping to, to uh, cassette tape so you could load your program right. back in, you know, instead of having to type it all back in again. Kind of how I started, too. I was I bought an Apple II in 79. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, and the one thing that really intrigued me the most was, like, all the software that was available for Apple II, but it wasn't so much the software, but the fact that it was all copy protected. Uh -huh. That the copy protection intrigued me. Uh -huh. Not the actual software, but the copy protection. So I made it like my mission uh -huh. to anything that I bought to remove the copy protection and I would boot code traits. Uh -huh. Then a buddy of mine who was in the double E department uh -huh. said, "You know, I can make your job a lot easier." And I said, "Why or how?" He says, "I'll make you a box. It'll show you the current address that's being being executed." on the Apple II. And I said, yeah, but it's going to go so fast. Who, who cares? You couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. He goes, I'll put a, we'll pull the ready line, and I'll put a pot on it. You'll be able to step through mm -hmm. the code. You'll be able to slow it down, so it'll execute right. you know, one address at a time. You could step through it manually. You, know, you could make it go as fast or as slow as you want it, and it was like, oh, my God. That's neat. I, oh, was that ever neat? You knew exactly where a program was going. You know what it was executing. You could watch the loop. It showed the address and the data in that. Oh, it was great. But all the all, I refused to use an assembler. Uh -huh. I had entered everything in hex. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. For any kind of modifications or programs, right? And then my, a buddy of my family said, "You know, they have macro assemblers for right. 6502. Why aren't you using them?" Yeah. I'm like, "Ah, that's our pussies use that stuff." Yeah. <laughs> you know. But then you know, eventually you sober up. You know. So sorry, my oh, subversion. Well, yeah. Well, I didn't have that available, you know, on the uh, when I was you know, 
on this little evaluation board. Right. And so I, I was real, real familiar with the, the instruction set. It was just a matter of refreshing my memory on that stuff. I pulled out the old manuals that I had from my dad's basement on the 6800 instruction set and, you know, what flags are set by which instruction in order to set up my simulator. Um, so it really wasn't that big of a deal once I found the routines. Now, do you know, the, in 77 or 78, when Williams started with, with System 3, how were they entering this stuff? I mean, how were they writing programs and stuff? Were they using assembler, or were they entering it in hacks? Were they using, you know, like your evaluation box and writing it out to a cassette? What oh, were they doing? No, it's all, they were using all assembler, and they were originally using the Motorola Exerciser development stations. Now, back then, when the, when the manufacturers would, would um, uh, sell you their, um, their microprocessors, they also had, here's the development system that goes along with it, mm. which includes, you know, keyboard and big 8-inch floppy disk drive and, you know, and a display and, and um, um, you know, an assembler and that sort of thing. And I've, I've seen the program listings from, from back then. Do they uh, still have the big 8-inch disks and all that stuff there at Williams? Uh, well, it's probably not at Williams anymore. But, uh, <laughs> it's a Duncan Brown's basement. <laughs> interestingly, I haven't seen them. I didn't see them at Williams, but at, um, at some point, somebody dug up all the stuff from Bally. And Bally had a better archiving system from the very early days than Williams did. They had a file cabinet, had a file for every single game. And in there was the 8-inch floppy, which I presume had all the stuff on it. I had no way of reading it, plus a hard copy, a printout of the, of the game code. Hmm. So, yeah, there was one for Centaur, one for 8-Ball Deluxe, and one, you know. Were the printouts, the assembler printouts, or just the final, you know, the, the final hex codes? Oh, it had all the comments in it. Oh, it, it did. Was, it was so fully, it, yeah. it was the assembled yeah. right. version then, right. or the unassembled version. Right, yeah. right. And along in there was, you know, the um, you know, the lamp matrix. And the, the, yeah, and the mappings and for and all the, that stuff. Right, and the switch matrix and whatever other notes. And oh, pretty cool. Now, who has all that stuff? I don't know. It disappeared after I left. And you didn't make copies of any of that stuff? Uh, no, no, I, no, no. Yeah, it certainly was really interesting to look at. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Does it say who wrote the stuff? Uh, that's a good question. I don't remember, as I only remember checking a few of them out in in the drawer. You know, to pull it out, and go, wow, this is really neat. Look at this. All right. Um, I I don't remember if it had the uh, you know at the top you know. Or, you know, whether it was just initials or, you know, right. whatever. I don't, I don't so we don't really know who programmed that stuff, huh? Yeah. Huh. Okay. All right. Okay, so that's early 90s. So that's, yeah, so that's early 90s. I had, it's, I modified um, the Firepower ROM. And then um, a friend of mine who I um, hooked up with who was way into Bally games convinced me that I should only collect Williams games. So, that, so, right, that, so he could come over to your house and you could go over to his. And right, right, and, and so yeah. that we're not in competition with each other. All right. But he also had the idea of making um, free play ROMs for all the Bally games. So I changed my simulator to work with the uh, Bally system as well. Hmm. And then I went through and uh, and made a, a series of free play ROMs. You did that for the Bally? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because the guy over in um, Switzerland has done that too. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think I think my version of the ROMs have ended up in one of these all-in-one aftermarket uh, CPU boards. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, maybe the Callahan one or something, or the Alltech one, or I think the Alltech one. Yeah, I think. Did they I, ask you, or just do it? Well, I I I 
did it for somebody else, so it was somebody else who oh. who gave it to them. So. Gotcha. Do you care? No, I don't care. Okay. Just that curious. doesn't matter to me. Right. So I also made friends around that time with um, Jack Simonton, who um, had the uh, pinball trader for a while. Okay. And uh, he came in town, uh, into Chicago, for some training seminar. He worked at Apple at the time. And he got Larry DeMar to uh, give him a tour of the factory. And you tagged along. And I tagged along, because I had done a couple articles for Pin Game Journal. Um, and he said, oh, you work for the magazine, but come along. And so I, I, I uh, brought along my disc with my pinball simulator. Hmm. Um, when, and, uh, and, of course, getting a tour of the factory after well, I Well, you mean on, like, three-and-a-half-inch floppy or something? IBM well, format? Yeah. 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 So I brought along, you know, brought along, and uh, you know, the, the high part of the day I thought was going to be getting a tour of the factory, which is pretty darn exciting, you know, right. after, after hours sort of thing. But also I wanted to show um, Larry the, the simulator work that I had been doing. And um, he couldn't take me upstairs at, at the time because um, he was working on a, a new pinball game, um, and they're very secretive right. at, at Williams. So um, instead, at the time, um, the Williams video department was still in that same building downstairs. So he took me into Eugene Jarvis's office, hmm. where did you know who Eugene was at the time? I knew that Eugene programmed Firepower. I I, I thought Ted program or Ted. <laughs> I thought Larry programmed Firepower. No, that's a Eugene game. Really? Okay. Yeah. And uh, so I, uh, I I put my simulator in uh, in into Eugene's game. And I popped the thing up, and you know, and of course they have to use their imagination because it's just showing you the lights and that right. sort of thing. But I'm now playing the game. I said, okay, let's put three balls in the trough. Let's put some credits on the game. What do you have to hold keys down you for, you the, put, for yeah, the trough? Right, you put right. So. Well, I, it was a toggle. You press once for down, and then you press again oh, for I up. Oh, gotcha. So you know, so I put the balls in, started uh, putting some credits, and you could see the credit counter go on the display. And I said, let's start a game, and then. Um, you could see, um, you know, it uh, go out of a track mode and do, and do something else, and, right. and so then I was hitting some, hitting some rollover targets and showing the lane change thing right. happen and everything, and uh, and everybody was gathering around because they're all working late over there, and they're like, "What's everybody looking at?" And they're right. all like, all looking over my shoulder. I'm like, "Now this is really cool. Here are all these people who." You know, work on who uh, developed the game. Yeah, who developed the game. Here I have Eugene Jarvis's computer, showing him you know something you know ten years after the fact, yeah, you right. know eleven years after the fact. But um, it was it was pretty pretty neat. And what did they have a similar development tools system? I mean, for I would imagine that Larry or those guys would have written something similar so that they could test stuff on their machine without dumping it into the game or. No, it's all done on. on it the is, game. yeah, because they have a separate module that plugs into the RAM space or something, or, or the ROM space on the CPU board right, that then that, goes through a serial port on your computer or a parallel port or something. That's the key for doing that kind of development. Instead of burning a ROM every time you make a change, instead you have a, basically what's a ROM simulator. It's, right. it's a big RAM chip that you can download rapidly in some way. All right. Um, in the older days, um, those uh, the Williams Double uh, E department would make them custom, um, and you'd, it would talk over the serial port or the parallel port off of a PC. Uh, but nowadays, you can buy them off the shelf. Oh, really? ROM emulators. Huh. They're still kind of pricey, but sometimes you can pick them up cheap on eBay if you're really into that sort of thing. 
Right, you mean you know, so you can emulate a 27.4 meg or whatever? Right, right. Huh. Okay. Interesting. I didn't know that. Hmm. So that night, um, uh, uh, Larry invited us back to his uh, uh, his apartment and uh, bought us pizza, and he told me, wow, you should be working with me. And I thought about it for a while, and I, I'm like, you know, well, yeah, you program one pinball game, but then you've done it. Right. How much is there to put actually doing a pinball game? Um, there's, you know, can't be that much more work to do the second. Was he one. insulted when you said that? I would not even say it to him. <laughs> I was just thinking it to myself. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> it took me a while. I kept thinking about it, and things weren't going so well with my job at AT and T. My division got sold to um, Memorex Telex, and then eventually um, Memorex Telex. Uh, decided to move down to Raleigh. Well, they're based in Raleigh, and they were going to shut down our division. And the interesting thing was I was getting more and more, getting sort of a weird vibe at work and getting a little more dissatisfied with the work I was doing there. And the day I decided to go into work and fire up Microsoft Word and put my resume together and send it to Larry just on a whim to see... Um, was the day they, they announced that we were going to move to Raleigh, North Carolina. And that, you know, one-third of you are, you know, we're going to walk you out today, and one-third of you, um, we're going to pay you for four months to, you know, wrap things up, and one-third of you, you can move to Raleigh if you want. Um, Which third were you? I was actually one of the ones that offered the, the relocation down to Raleigh, but... Uh, um, I did a bunch of interviewing in, around here, and I, I looked into things, and... It, um, the the job at Williams was the one that was the most interesting. Did they Williams pay real money, or was it all like you know we can get anybody in here to build pinball machines? We don't need to pay these people. It's interesting because they did take a cut in pay. I took a pretty big cut in pay. You did um, to, okay. to go down there because um, I talked to Cameron. I interviewed Cameron, and I kind of you know he moved from Australia, and it just sounds like they weren't paying him anything to come do this, that he just wanted to do it. Mm. They could, you know, he was almost, sounded like he was almost paying them, you know? Well, yeah, um, when Cameron approached me at the time, I was afraid of moving somebody halfway across the world. And then it, yeah, not, that's what and he then, said, and yeah. And not working out. Right. Um, and uh, part of the issue there was... Um, to sponsor somebody to get the um, green card, yeah. yeah. Well, it's not even the green card; it's the, oh, the visa, right? Yeah, the visa for for working. It's a lot of work and a lot of money, and um, and just to get him all set up, and then to not, you know, right, not have him follow through or yeah, whatever. Well, like, not, or not work, out. work out, right? Yeah. And he basically said, "Look, I, this is my dream job. What if I show up on your doorstep? Would right. you give me a job?" And I said, "Well, if you were here, yes. If you were already here, I would." I would, uh, yeah, that's I would exactly a, what he said. I yeah. would give you a job, and uh, so I, I, um, you know, I, I did our part of the the job, but he uh, he paid the attorney um, to get uh, to get the visa hmm. uh, thing, and it worked out really well, as it turns out. Um, right. Uh, it just goes to show sometimes when you when you when you look at uh, people's. Uh, you know, school records and stuff and they'll always tell you how they're going to do afterwards. Right. And uh, and, MV, and uh, Williams went on to sponsor his, his green card too. Right. So then, okay, so then you told Larry to take it. Right? And so I, well, I went and interviewed and, and he oh, was... Oh, so you mean it wasn't a for sure then? It wasn't a for sure at the time. He really wanted to get me in. Um, Larry was um, just an engineer back then. In fact, I think he was a contract engineer, didn't work directly for Williams. 
and he was in the middle of getting um, Adam's family out the door, so he was very busy. Right. So it took a it took a few go rounds to get um, some of the management who actually was involved in the hiring decision um, to actually get to hire me. You know, they're looking at me like, well, I, hey, we're used to hiring somebody fresh out of school for for real cheap. Right. Right. You don't Composed have just regular cheap. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you don't have any experience with coin op. But even though my experience was in embedded real time systems, and I uh, I eventually did. Uh, bring a lot of um, like uh, more order to the, the development process in terms of let's document our changes and make sure that we can um, back up what we've produced. Larry wasn't produced. doing all that stuff? He was doing it on his own games. It was not done as a rule in the whole department. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, Larry Larry was a firm believer of source code control and backing things up. And right. A lot of the other stuff was just willy-nilly. Right. So Larry at the time was not head of anything. He wasn't even a Williams employee. No, he was a contractor. Huh, for all through the 80s he was too? Well, I don't, you'll have to ask Larry about the history there because I can't really remember. I mean, I, I don't want to speak out. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Because he eventually became head of pinball division, right? Right, he became the director. Yeah, the director. Director of engineering, yeah. Right, and you became director of the software I side, was, right? I was software manager. Right. I, yeah, I was software, after I was there within a, about a year and a half I, I became manager of the software department was that because once again your experience in more structured policies and and that or you know it just kind of you ended up yeah it sort of fell way. out fell out of that yeah yeah and un, well and unfortunately that meant that I didn't have time for for doing many games either yeah because so you did Twilight Zone Red and Ted and demo and that right. was about it right right that was about it I also did uh, um, Adam's Family Values, the coin drop game. Oh, okay. It's a novelty game. Right, right. The Redemption is it? It's considered it, a redemption. Yeah, it's a redemption game. Right. Ticket yeah. Spitter. Yeah. And on um, and uh, Roadshow, I wasn't the main programmer. Dwight. Uh, Dwight Sullivan, was. Yeah. Dwight Sullivan. I was just backup. I was, right. I was display grunt. Display grunt. Yeah. Okay. Now, what about on Twilight Zone? Was Larry the lead programmer, and you were? You know, you were again. You know, or were you the lead programmer? Larry was lead programmer on that. Larry's always lead programmer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's interesting too on that um, on that game, which was my first. I was working so hard because I wanted to prove myself. Because you know, these uh, here were all these other people who had a bunch of other games under their belts, um, and I I was just working long hours and and through weekends and and uh, when it was all over Larry said I was working so hard to keep up with you and I said I said well, wait a minute I was working so hard to keep up with you <laughs> oh man you guys should talk more <laughs> well you know that I mean the Twilight Zone I mean did you get to pick that project or was it just assigned to you um it was pretty much assigned to me. Yeah. Um, Did you see it as a winner right from the get go? When I first got there, I, I don't think Pat had anything. He was still anyhow. He he didn't know what his next game was going to be at that point, and it wasn't clear that I was going to be assigned to that project at first. Um, you know, I sort of had an in because because uh, you know I'd convinced Larry, uh, you know, um, that I knew what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and 
And the fun thing was, when I first got there, they didn't even have an office for me. I show up to work, and there wasn't a place for, for me to sit. And I, I spent the first week there um, sitting in Pat's office um, and learning the, some of the pinball operating system on the Twilight Zone in his office, huh. you know, doing the equivalent of Hello World type stuff. All right. So and that gave me the opportunity to at least meet Pat and talk to him some more. And so the game was it. well into... Whitewood. Or not Twilight Zone. Adam's family. I'm sorry. Adam's family. Okay. Yeah. No. No. I, the, his Adam's family that was sitting there. Right. Um, Do you know any neat mods on Adam's? Um, the home ROM has the bigger font on it. Bigger font. Yeah. The bigger score font. Oh. Oh. oh yeah. 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 I noticed the yeah. score is kind of yeah. kind of meager in size, and you made yeah. okay. Yeah. So the home ROM has that. That was one of the things I did as part of my learning. So your experience. learning experience ended up as a home ROM. Yeah. Is that entirely your baby? No, I don't. No. No? No. Now, who did the gold? Uh, uh, Mike Boone did that. Okay. Okay. So, did he incorporate any of your home features into the home uh, or into the gold? I think so, because I was working on the same code base, and then he just split off from wherever that was sitting. So, there were a couple options I added in there, too. Um, like... Uh, well, uh, like there's a rule change on one of the adjustments for spotting the thing letters. It's still default the way it was in the production game, but you can change the rule. Hmm. I added that in there as an. Uh, All right. I forget what the rule is now. I think it's ball comes in the right return lane, and then you flip it into the that that center ramp to spot the the thing letter. Now, were there? When you were doing this, was there anything that you were like looked at and were surprised about? Oh wow, I, I would have never thought they did it like that, or you know, you know, you know anything in the in you know in the in the code or in the whole process, you know, in the you know in the development process that you know, I mean, anything that surprised you or or you know, anything interesting? Well, the big surprise for me, I guess, was that there was so much that goes into a game. Um, and part of that has to do with the stuff that's on the display too. The display is a lot of uh, a lot of the work on on, on the more modern games. Um, now, did you do that? Where I mean, you weren't actually doing the art for the display, right? No, I'm no artist. It would look like stick figures if you had me doing the art. All right. Um, so, did you ever try that? The best I ever did was late at night, where I needed something slightly changed, you know, because the the animation artists go home. You know, regular hours. It's the programmers that, that oh really that do the the long uh, weird hours. You know, and I might need you know a few dots moved around or something like that. And you could do that. That's about it. Right. That and um, I, I had some background in font design from my work at AT and T. Uh, I worked on uh, computer terminals for uh, well, what it used to be the teletype division. All right. And uh, so I, I, I dabbled in a little bit. Of, I like big blocky fonts so that while you're playing, you can glance up at the screen right, and, instead of, and, yeah. and read read the instructions and that sort of thing. But no, any kind of artwork, I'm not, no good in any of that. Well, like for instance, if you want a font on there, how is a how is a font actually done? I mean, how is it implemented in in that system? I, I mean, I assume that you know you create a character set or something, right? I mean, how does this work? It's it's just a bitmap, and there are a bunch of routines. That so each use. letter is bitmapped? Right. Doesn't that take up like an ungodly amount of space? I mean, it's not that much, no, because it's not that big of a display. Right. So think about it. The character is not all that big. 
And what about the intensity levels of the dots? So I don't know how, how many intensity levels were there. Um, well, there's three intensity levels plus off, so it only takes two bits per pixel. Gotcha. So. Okay. Now, what takes up all the room is all the animations when you're playing all the little movies and things. But you never had to do that because the animation guys did. That. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. And then, okay, so now Twilight, so you get on Twilight Zone, and you and Larry are grinding each other's teeth on the stone. Yeah. You know, and I mean, when you got all done with that, what what version number was actually the release version that went out on the street when the game first went into production? Uh, well, what we always tried to do at Williams was L1 was the first release. Okay. Um, and, and P1 is... Prototype or what does P mean? P means probably the first one that you put on test. Okay. P, you know, when we first started, we used to call it bottom of the stairs. We would right, put, right. We would put a game at the bottom of the stairs outside engineering, and that would probably be like a PA or a PB version. It ba- barely had any rules in it, not much artwork, and you know. Um, and then when you first went on test, you would you would jump up to P1 and start keeping Test going. being the restaurant or bar or arcade or wherever right. you were putting this stuff. Right, right. And and you could probably burn through P versions pretty quickly right. um, because, you know, you're visiting those games every night and you're going, going home and, you know, and you're going, oh, wow, we found a bug or, you know, or um, right. you're dumping a whole lot of artwork in and you're trying, you know, you're trying to make the game as interesting as possible, too, so that you can get some earning numbers out of it. And so, you know, if you can get the get more artwork or more wools in it or whatever. And how did Twilight Zone earn on, on test? I really don't remember. That was a long time ago. But, I mean, were they happy with it? Yeah. yeah. They were. Okay. Twilight Zone was still in the good days of, of good earnings. Right. Pinball was still strong. Yeah, Pinball was still strong. Right. So L1 was the revert, was the release. Right. And then eventually ended up at 9X or whatever. Yeah, well, we changed the we changed the, the the numbering system at some point in there. L stands for level mm-hmm. because um, on the original, Larry Larry told me this, so I hope I get get it right. On the original um, alphanumeric displays, only the top line was was the many segment one. The bottom line of the the thing was only seven segment. Right, right. The top was alphanumeric, right, and the bottom was numeric on right. system eleven. Right. So you couldn't do an R on the or your, right. yeah. So you couldn't do an R for rev. So instead they did an L. Gotcha. You and know. that was left over from those days. Right. It was left over from those days. Okay. And then, um, so we would do L one as the first release, you know, as it as it hit the line. And you try not to do too many changes after that. Usually when you go to like L two, L three. Um, it's either for bug fixes or putting new coinage in right. or you're finishing up translations right. uh, for German or French or whatever that sort of did thing. Did you have to do that too, the German and French stuff? Uh, the way that we did those was we, um, we let the distributors give us the text back. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so you so give them the game in English, yeah. let them figure it out, then they write everything down they want translated and how they want it translated. Well, it's where was more involvement on, on our part. We would give them a list of the text strings and even describe why, why this message comes up so that mm-hmm. they would know a little bit about the context of this message. 
and then they would write, ba- you know, write back. Okay, here, put this there, put this there. Some of them, some of them, we we got to know. We could, you know, we'd remember what shoot left ramp was in French, for example. Right. You know, so, so we didn't need to ask them that over and over again. But you know, when you're trying to describe, um, you know, the dead end feature in Twilight Zone. You know, I can remember having a, a conversation with um, our French distributor about that. He couldn't understand what a dead end was, what a dead end street was. And finally he goes, oh, I came up with the uh, good name for it, a cul-de-sac. <laughs> and I'm like, well, well yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but apparently cul-de-sac means bottom of the bag. So it was even a joke in French. So it was, it was very proud of that whole thing. So was so, that what you ended up using? Yeah, it was, yeah, it's the cul-de-sac. And Even though here that means a completely different thing. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. you have that sort of thing, and then you got to fit it back in there because sometimes you know there's a lot more letters in it than it was in English, and then you got to ask them again and go, well, I can't fit this on the screen. Can you fit it in 26 letters instead of 32? And huh. they tell you how to abbreviate it. So some of those things are iterative. Right. And there was always space in the ROMs for this stuff. Yeah, that kind of thing. There's you know, um, especially with a dot matrix game, you know, if, if you're running out of space, you got to take some pictures out. Oh, pictures. Well, the animations, instead of having 10 frames, it goes down to 8 frames yeah, or something? right. Okay. So you could do that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, text and um, and, bit, and bitmaps for fonts and stuff just don't take up that much room. It was, all, it was mostly... The animations. The animations, yeah. Hmm. So now, Twilight, so you do the Twilight Zone, and then... But you still, you got this revision. You said L1 was the release, but then you get to 9-whatever. Something changed in the middle, is that what you said? Yeah, well, the other thing that happens um, is that uh, there's a there's a core operating system that, that's used on the... Um, the Apple system. Yeah. yeah you, so you got the, the actual software operating system that you used to compile the whole thing. Right. And that changed, is that what you're saying? Right. And 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 Larry over the years would add features to it. Right. Um, like um, hitting both flipper buttons, kills, and a ball sequence that was part of the operating system? No, maybe? that's actually game specific. That is. Yeah. Okay. But you know, like a coinage mode would be in the operating system or adding support for printers. And um, I noticed the Ted Estes improvement is the progression line at boot up. That was you, wasn't it? No, I don't think so. Really? I, th- I think Cameron did that one. Oh, really? The progression bar? Yeah. yeah oh, I, okay. I think that's Cameron. I okay. didn't do that one. All right. Yeah, okay. no. I, then I, I thought that was you. No, I did um, I did logic for broken flipper switches. Oh, so it uses the other opto? Yeah, I did that logic. I added that in there. Right. And and there, there were some other things. There were some parts in the real time where I tweaked and optimized a few things to take out few instruction cycles here and there in order to gain some of the real-time right. processing time back. and I don't know, just, there's all kinds of little changes over time. But the goal was always to make that operating system backwards compatible. Right. And in order to test that, Larry would always crank up versions of, of like Funhouse and, uh, and Twilight Zone and uh, World Cup and, and take them all home. You know, and put them in his game, and you know, and I and I tried Demolition Man, and you know, and that's right. Of thing. Your games, right? I try my games, and we try them all out, and go, okay, seems like we're, you know, we got it backwards compatible, doing pretty well. That's our regression test. So that's part of the reason why some of those games kept incrementing in rev number, 
So even though there was no game-specific fix, they might have picked up new features on from, the, from this, yeah, yeah. From the operating system. Right. Like I know one feature Larry um, added was when you change a setting. The old, remember the older version? It sits there and goes bong, bong, bong. Right, and you got to press the start button. You can do the start button in right. order to speed up the saving of it. Right. Um, the idea of the bong, bong, bong is to give you a chance to cancel the save. Right. right? And he, he's like, well, what if I don't want to cancel? I know I want to save it. So. Right. So there were some other things like that that, that were added in. Hmm. So that was part of the reason why Twilight Zone had so many... Um, had a jump in numbers. It had so many jumps in numbers. It went, um, you know, one, two, three. Sometimes there were revs that were internal and we never released them, right? Because we, you know, we were bumping the revision number just to test um, the operating system, the, you know, changes that we right. And in some cases, um, there might have been game-specific fixes in there. Just, you know, oh, hey, I noticed this display glitch and I fixed it. You know, be those sorts of things. Now, what about... What about the magnet throw thing in Twilight Zone? You know, was that your idea or was that Pat's idea? No, that was actually Larry's idea, and he implemented the code. But in, but you're saying that it never really worked right or something, right? It didn't. It didn't work in Twilight Zone because the optos and the magnets were um, too close together. Well, it's not even that. It's not even that problem. The problem was that they were not um, in alignment. It's because the magnets were screwed to the bottom of the play field and the optos were screwed to the top, and based on manufacturing differences, they would move around. Really? Yeah. By how much? Well, it doesn't take very much, because all you're doing in order to fling the ball is turning the magnet off for a few milliseconds. To let the ball fall back. Fall back, and then you pulse it for a few milliseconds. To slide it back up with enough momentum and then let it go. And it comes around. So, like on Shadow, yeah. you're saying that that was all one assembly. The magnet and the optos were right. in one metal mechanical assembly right. from the bottom of the playfield, so it was easier to, right. to compensate for any. Right. So, if you look, yeah, yeah, if you look at Shadow, that mechanism bolts right through the playfield, and the, and it's all one piece. So, if the opto shifts, so does the magnet, and vice versa. Gotcha. So they're always in alignment, and you've got the alignment just right. Larry got the tossing working on one game. On you know one game in his office, but then it wouldn't work on the game in my office. Mm. And then we try to tweak it some more to get it working on my game, and then it wouldn't work on the on one in his office. Okay. So that um, so we just disabled the code. All right. But you have that version at your at at home, right? Yes. Right. And do you like it? It's okay. It's it's interesting to watch. Um, I turned it on in a few places, probably more than it needs to be. Um, just so that people can see it happen. But right. it, it's enough that it actually gets in the way. Uh, like, why did the why did the ball do that? I forget which rules I added on there, but shooting spirals um, on a spiral award, it actually throws the ball back at you after it catches, oh, the, catches gotcha. the ball. Instead of dropping it down, it throws it back the way it came from. Hmm. Um, the nifty part about it is when it does the uh, beginning of multi-ball. It loads um, all three balls on the three magnets if you've got the three magnets in place. And depending on where the balls come from, if it's kicking them out of the lockup, it has to use the ball tossing code in order to get them up and around onto all three magnets. No, not on nine four. You use the three. You can use if your three magnets are installed. It'll do that similar similarly, 
lock each one. Right. But doesn't the in order for that to actually work, doesn't the Powerball have to cycle through the gumball machine or something before that'll actually turn on? Right. I have to know where the where the where the Powerball is before. And I, so that's the way you. So yeah. it, so if you know, yeah, okay. Yeah. So once you turn the game off. Yeah. You have to turn it. You turn the game back on. The Powerball has to cycle through the gumball machine before that option will turn on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the 9.4 code that's regularly released, it will only do the ball catching code if it, um, if at most one ball is in the lockup, because it can't. One ball in the lockup? Oh, in the. Yeah, for the beginning of multi ball. Okay. Right. And I'm hoping I'm remembering right. Again, that was many years ago, because I can't get if if there's. Too many balls in the lockup, I can't get them on all the magnets. I need to be able to use them off the auto-fire plunger. Right. Right. But I also want to know where the power ball is because I can't catch that ball. Right. And I didn't want it flinging around while... while yeah, hitting ball. the other stuff and knocking right. it all off the magnets. Right. right, while all this other choreography is going on. And I, and I didn't add any new logic. I just used an existing routine that tracked the white ball. Um that it actually had seen it once, and now it knew that it was in right. in the um, in the gumball machine. But it doesn't save its state across power cycle. Gotcha. Okay. So that's why it's not like that. Okay. So now, what brought on like when you did nine four, and then you did the ho- the home? You were originally going to do something past that too, weren't you? And then that fiasco with the free play thing came, kind of set everything on end, right? Uh. Well, the 9.4, um, which is a strict home version, strict free play version. Right, there's a 9.4H, right, which is strictly free play and strictly home version, and I was going to put out a non-free play version of that, but it, it wouldn't have had, I don't think... Let's see. Well, you wouldn't have the thing where you press the button to answer the phone right. that what holds the ball in the up flipper position. Right, right. There were a couple other things that it wouldn't have had. I don't remember what. But that was, it had a few minor bug fixes and that sort of thing, but it was going to be the last release. And I just never got around to releasing it because I was just, you know, somebody disabled the free play um, uh, uh, code on there and, and it just it, it bothered me that people were messing around with it like that. Games under development, we turned free play on by default. Um, just so that um, a released version of uh, an unreleased version of code wouldn't get out in the field. Right. And at some point, um, while I was manager of the software department, I instituted the policy that um, all home ROMs had to be free play only. Also. Right, because you don't want those out there collecting money. Well, it wasn't the collecting money that was really the problem. Oh, the, I, in the public eye. And it, the biggest problem was the the service issue. Um, uh, somebody calls up to the service department, says, I'm having problems with this game, and it's acting funny, right? And they go, well, what version of, of ROM are you using? And, and they go, oh, well, I'm using, you know, version 5. And they and the, the service person's looking down and saying, well, the last one I see is us officially releasing is 4. Where did you get this 5 from? Right. You know, um, it, 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 it meant that we weren't making very many friends in the service department when that sort of thing was, was happening. All right. So so we we wanted to keep anything like that, anything that wasn't officially released, as free play only, just so that it wasn't a service problem. 
know, our, our service guys have enough problems with with real issues, right? Yeah, much less you know something like that. Yeah. Right. In '93, after you did what Red and Ted, then you went to department head of software, right? Uh, I was I was department head probably by about the end of Twilight Zone, I think. Man, you move fast. Yeah. So so you blew by all the other software guys, left them in the dust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, now you're never going to get any interviews with them. <laughs> we say that. Um, and I no because by the time I was working on um, uh, Demolition Man, which was my next game, I was I was uh, manager of the department. And um, and I, I squeezed um, Adam's Family Values in there in between Twilight Zone and, and Demolition Man. So was Demolition Man, was that a fun game? It was an interesting game to work on. Um, I've only really worked with two head designers, Pat and Dennis. And it's, it's, it's interesting to work with the different designers because they have different styles of, of game design. Right. And... and um, some have more of an overall vision and very specific things that they want the game to do, and others are more of a okay. I'm going to paint this. I'm going to have this canvas for a game, and then I'm looking for input from a lot of people to actually fill in all the pieces on the canvas. Um, and uh, I, Pat's more in the first camp, and Dennis is more in the second camp on that. Oh. So you got to. Flex your artistic muscles and in, in game rules and and whatever and features yeah. more with Dennis. And I would say that I'm not very good at it either. Oh really? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm I'm. So you kind of like working with Pat better. <laughs> <laughs> it has its pluses and minuses right. both ways. Well, if somebody gives me a completely blank canvas, you know, it's 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 a little tough. And it, it's an interesting experience too because on on uh, Demolition Man. Uh, I got input, a lot of input from um, Doug Watson, who was the the artist on that game, and he's a he's a pretty good pinball player too. Mm. And he and I went through lots and lots of rules that really sucked, where <laughs> I would where I would mock them up, and we'd get them on there, and we would play them, and we'd be like, "Well, this is terrible," you know. And um, that's one of the things that. Uh, I never realized about uh, working on a pinball game until I was at Williams that yeah, if you know the answer, like if you look at a game, it might not take you all that long to to exactly copy this this game that already exists. But to create a new one, you throw away two thirds of, of of what you're what you worked on in terms of rules and right. stuff. Um, you know, oh, this did, this was no fun, and that was no fun. You know, Twilight Zone had a, a bunch of um, early rules, uh, like the multi-ball and jackpot rules were really wacky, wacky, and and and, and almost impossible to do. Um, and there were some like that on, on Demolition Man as well. Hmm. Now, the Demolition, the fabled Demolition Home, who, whose brainchild was that? Well, we wanted to do that. Um, uh, from the beginning, because there were, um, you know, there were quotes from the movie that were, you know, as an R-rated movie. But yeah, you, classic quotes that you couldn't use right, otherwise. Right. And so um, when Lyman Sheets started at, at Williams, I gave him the um, uh, the assignment of of doing the home rom for for Demolition Man as his way of getting up to speed. Now he had background um, from uh, Data East. 
well, Dainty East Sega by the time he right. left, right? So, um, but just to get him familiar with whatever our operating system looked like and the development. Yeah, it was a good exercise for two birds, one stone. Right. Right. So, um, so he went through and he, he familiarized himself with the rules and. Who digitized all the all the voice calls? I mean, who, you know, obviously that you you had custom speech for that game from the actors, right? right. So obviously you didn't that you had to steal these from the movie. Right, those were lifted from the movie, and I think, I think in general we get that that stuff from the studios. Even oh really? Yeah. Huh. Or if you you know if if the movie's already out, you know you can lift it off of there. So uh, did somebody have to do that, or did you just use the but, you know whatever the package contained? Um, I don't really recall. John Hay was the sound engineer on that. And he gave me a set of ROMs. Oh, okay. For it. And it, while he was doing it, um, it pushed it from. Um, six ROMs into seven, um, and he said, "Well, as long as it's going to go to seven, why don't? And it's only for home ROMs. Why don't I go to eight? And he turned down the compression on all the music hmm. um, to, you know, because you know when it's at home and maybe it's the only game that's on, you might actually notice a difference in sound. I, I can't hear the difference. You can't. Okay. Not I really. don't know. I don't. I've never really done an AB comparison. Yeah, I have. I I, I couldn't notice that. Okay. You know. So that's why it's eight ROMs. There's probably more in those ROMs than what was actually used. John just went through and dumped a whole bunch of stuff in. Lyman was uh, did a, a critical assessment in terms of you know where would these speech calls actually go right. instead of just dumping them all over the place. Right. Um, and then um, and then he uh, we went ahead and did the uh, you know we made copies for everybody on the design team. Did what about the actors? Did they get that version too? No. 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 In fact, I don't. No, we didn't make a special. We didn't make a special version for the actors. Because no. you've done that before, right? That was done for um, Star Trek, but I don't. I don't believe we did that for any other game in terms of special software. Right. Is that what so, the Star Trek Home thing is all about? Is it that's for actually the people on the. Because that one's sneaked out too. Well, th yeah. Well, there's sooner than the demo, man. Yeah, the, I th there's something like seven or eight versions of Home Run for for Star Trek. Really? Yeah, one for each of the actors because each one got a. I got a game. different one. So yeah. what's the one that sneaked out? Well, that one has everything in it. Oh, okay, okay, all right, okay. So you would give, you know, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. So the demo man swear thing, I, I mean, was what was the theory behind keeping that under wraps for, God, it was just this year when that finally snuck out, and thanks to, really, Mike Wiley was the impetus behind that whole thing, whether we liked it or not. You know, he had a copy and put it for sale on eBay, and then that kind of got your wheels turning, right? Um, no? No comment. No comment? Okay. <laughs> Man, oh! Unfortunately, no matter what I say, no one will be happy with my explanation, and somebody will pick it apart. All right. So, yeah, you know, you're that smart. No, you know. So, let just suffice it to say that, um, you know, whatever whatever the reason was back then, it doesn't apply now. Right. Right. So you're okay that they're out now? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's not. It's not a problem. Yeah. And in fact, I had intended to. Um, let it go a while ago, and I just got busy and lazy. So you're not pissed at Wiley then? No, no. no. I just no. My only thing is I feel bad for anybody who might have paid a premium for it. 
Yeah, I think he, what he did is he was trying to sell a game, just a regular demo man, which usually sells for fifteen hundred dollars, and he got two thousand for it with the home runs. Yeah. So somebody paid five hundred dollars for that privilege, yeah. and then somebody else started selling the ROMs separately on eBay, and I think that was what finally that was the straw that just broke the camel's back. And you know. well, I actually tried to get I I tried to get the ROMs posted on the pinball database. While that auction was still yeah, they take going. forever to react yeah, to stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're, so, they're slow. Yeah, yeah so really I should slow. have done it long before then. I kept meaning to, and then I would forget. Right, then, right. So, no, I mean, it's not on the priority list. It's pretty low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now, what about the flipper coats? What about them? <laughs> There's a Ted flipper coat, and and is anybody else? I mean, and then I heard the game assumes a different personality. As far as I know, that's never. That's never been any. Oh, or which game? The demo man. Oh, your demo. Game. Oh, the demo. The home demo. Okay, no, there aren't any specific flipper codes for Demolition Man um, that that um, you know make it. The like, change speech or hello Ted or you know no. Stallone's yelling at Ted or you know or Senator Bullock's grabbing Ted's butt. None of that. <laughs> None like that. If, if, if you do your due diligence and take a look at the difference between the Home 5 ROM and the Home 6 ROM that's posted on um, on the pinball database, you'll see the adjustment in there. See the adjustment? There's an adjustment. There's an, there's an adjustment for which team member the game is. Oh, so you mean 5 was for one team and 6 was for... Six, 6 removes the adjustment. Oh. So is 5 a better thing to have? Well, some people might think so. I think it's really stupid, personally. Okay. I, I, I didn't want, I, in fact, that's why I made six, because I took the adjustment out. So really, the, the, the version you want to release to the public was six, not yeah. five. Right. Hmm. But five got out somehow? Well, somebody bought um, some team member's game. Oh. And then that kind of yeah. let the cat out of the bag. Yeah. Because yeah. I've only ever seen six. Yeah. I never, I didn't even know... Five existed. Yeah. Oh, hmm. now were you mad about that one? No. No, it doesn't matter. It's all moot point. Doesn't okay. matter. Okay, we're going to take a break talking with Ted Estes of uh, the Pinball Programming Department at Williams and Valley. The Pin Game Journal is a proud sponsor of Topcast. It covers pinball like no other publication can. The Pin Game Journal is America's only pinball publication. Whether you're looking for new games or the classics, reports on industry shows or collector expos. Insights on a game you want or features to help you fix the game you've got, Pin Game Journal's for you. Their website is at pingamejournal.com. Okay, we're back with Ted Estes of the uh, Williams Valley Programming Department. Okay. So now in 93, you're basically not doing game software anymore, but you're head of the department. So from 93 to 99, what, you know, what, what's, what's going on? I mean, what are you... Well, you know, I still did... Uh... See, Twilight Zone came out in spring of '93. Mm-hmm. Right. And I and uh, Demolition Man was spring of '94. Mm-hmm. And um, Roadshow was that spring of '95? No, it was earlier than that. It was like was it must have been fall of '94 then? Yeah. Fall of '94. So that was the last game I worked on. It was Red and Ted? Did you like that one? It was okay. There's some stuff that I wish we could have done better. There was a and well, um, well. Now, why didn't you go nuts with you know, 
you know, you you went you did you went nuts with Twilight Zone. You went nuts with Demo Man, but then you kind of backed off on the Red and Ted. It's it's very difficult um, to manage a software department and be in development. Be very responsible. You know, when you're doing game development, it, there really is a crunch mode of about four months, where you 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 are working seventy hour weeks, and you know it, you can't get anything else done. Right. And uh, I even had a futon in my office during uh, Roadshow. Really. And uh, <laughs> spent many nights, um, you know, s- sleeping in my office. Hmm, that must be good for the family. Yeah, well, <laughs> luckily I didn't have kids then. But even that doesn't work very well because uh, Williams, they had this PA system that was the whole building. And even though it, even though you could select, you know, I only want to page somebody in one area, nobody knew those numbers. They only knew the one that paged the whole building. Right. So the factory would start up at 530 Six o'clock in the morning. So talking about Waukegan, right? Uh, well, no, this was still down here on uh, California Avenue, hmm. and uh, so you know you'd, you'd be working until um, twelve o'clock at night, and then try to catch a few hours of sleep, and then all of a sudden six at five thirty, six o'clock in the morning, they start paging people over, you know, right. over the intercom, waking you up. And it was a rough time. Now, what did the move from Chicago Ave to Waukegan? I heard that that was kind of a union-busting move. That you know that the factory at Chicago Avenue was all unionized, and Waukegan turns out that it wasn't, and that that was really the only reason they they actually moved production up to Waukegan. I mean, I know that's outside your realm, but I mean, do you know anything about that? It's you know it's sort of ringing a bell now, and I and I again the details are real hazy. That's um, many years ago. Since then, um, there was some talk of that, but I think we ended up with a different union up there. Hmm. So there, there probably was some of that. On the other hand, um, they were doing um, slot machine assembly down in in Calif- on California Avenue after right. they built the Wa- the Waukegan plant. So um, I'm not sure if that's the whole thing. Right. I don't know what I don't know what the whole grand plan was. Right. So, right. Well, speaking of the grand plan, so, you know, now you're heading the department. I mean, you know, what's your, you know, from 94, 95 to 99, is your job better, worse? Well, after Roadshow time frame, somewhere in there, um, uh, the head of the company had the bright idea of combining the uh, spinning reel slot department, software department, with the pinball department um, in order to... Um, spur creativity in the spinning reel slot designs. So um, I was I was managing the software for both at that point. Oh, okay. Um, and so now all of a sudden, um, you know, I had twice as many people reporting to me. Um, and uh, I got involved a lot more in the slot machine than the pinball stuff at that point. Um, there's a lot more going on in terms of. Uh, Dealing with regulators. And yeah, because it's a fully regulated environment. Yeah. You know, and yeah, like a yeah, casino can't change ROM code without Gaming Commission personnel being there to right. supervise it and so on and so forth. So I got to imagine that that revision levels in, in the slot department for software have to be. Right, every. every there's rev- got to be control. Right, every rev has to be, has to go through the, the labs for approval. 
and there's seven or eight different jurisdictions, and each one has slightly different rules. Right. And <clears throat> I did a lot, uh, you know some traveling to talk with um, various uh, 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 labs and the different jurisdictions about you know oh we've got this idea for a game you know. A bonus game or whatever, right. you know, is this allowable? Is that you know that sort of thing? So I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, we were also involved in a lawsuit at the time with IGT, with right? IGT, yeah. And I, I, um, I was involved with that, uh, trying to help out with uh, some prior art investigation, and ended up testifying uh, in the court case. Eventually, you guys prevailed, right? Uh, no, we lo- no. You lost? We lost that one. <laughs> no, we <almost> <laughs> <laughs> Well, but IGT was trying to sue you every which way, right? I th- yeah, I, uh, I think so. They basically, uh, and that forced you guys into video slots, right? Right, right. that forced us to, to go into video slots where the patent that they were suing us over didn't... Um, that didn't apply, and then um, and then that's what let uh, WMS Gaming actually take off. Right. They started doing really so. Well. Actually, IGT, you thank those guys. Yeah. At yeah, the time, I right. mean, you know, so they were the biggest idiots in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They they forced us to do something else, and uh, and you did it well. Yeah. Although I wasn't involved with that part, we had two separate departments. We had the one for the video slots and the one for the mechanical spinning guys. Oh, and you were in charge of the the spinning guys. Yeah. Now, what was the fiasco where a guy puts a dollar into the Williams slot, hits some combination of buttons, and gets 20 credits, $20 worth of credits? Now, that was on the... on the video, uh, on the videos with the touch screen, and um, it was some sort of a flaw in the operating system where it 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 got overwhelmed with messages from the touch screen and the and the and the buttons and and that sort of thing. Um, I don't remember. I think that happened right at well. Was I still working there or not? The last two years that I was at Williams, I was working on a separate project, which was a next generation operating system um, for a new. Uh, slot machine and, and video slot uh, uh, product line. Hmm. So you were shielded from this? Yeah, I wasn't really involved in the day-to-day right. stuff. Right. Now, what about Pinball 2000? Were you involved? How involved were you with that? Not very much. Um, we, well, we were working. While well, my team was working on its um, next casino platform, we were right alongside the Pinball 2000 folks. We. We uh, stayed in the same building and exchanged some ideas. And was this know. at Waukegan now? No, this is still on California Avenue. Okay. Uh, in Chicago, um, and uh, and I watched Pinball 2000 go on, um, but I decided to um, move over to the gaming side um, in the hopes that you know these really bright people from Pinball 2000 um, would would uh, invigorate the, the market again, and I would get a chance to get back over there and actually do one more game. That was my, that was my hope. I wanted to do one more pinball game. Huh. And that never happened. No. no so, but the intertwinement of pinball and, and, and slots was, like, pretty intense because in the early days when IGT was trying to keep you out of the marketplace... Pinball was basically financing slot machines. Right, but it was really a separate department. Yes, there was money from the pinball department that got the, you know, that was able to get them 
uh, get uh, Williams into the gaming market. Um, but there were really no exchange of ideas there. Um, it was only that short period of time where we combined the software department um, uh, uh, for pinball and for the mechanical slots that there was really that much exchange of ideas. During that time was when um, some of the spinning rail slots with the bonus games were designed, like um, Winning Streak and um, uh, X-Factor. Um, let's see, what else was there? Pirates Treasure, Pirates Gold, uh, Magic Lamp. Um, we worked on the uh, uh, the Monopoly games, right? Those, those first Monopoly. That you did well with. Yeah, yeah, we did well on the spinning reel versions of the Monopoly stuff. Right. Um, so, the head of the whole kit and caboodle, though, is De Castro. Uh, he's the head on both sides, right? Pinball and the slots. Yeah. Well, at some point, he he left to go with with Midway. Right. And if you're going to ask me on history of that. I I I can't remember the dates on that stuff. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. But so w where I was going with this is that at some point, Pinwall was kind of financing slots and financing the Atari Midway thing to its detriment in that it's making Pinwall look less profitable than it could be. And the point I'm getting across is. There seemed to be this kind of grand plan to kind of keep. It's equivalent of having an airplane. You're flying an airplane and you got a parachute and you jump out of a perfectly good airplane. It's kind of the equivalent to what Williams did to pinball. Well, I I don't know whether that's necessarily true. Um, pinball certainly kept the company going during the the slump in the mid '80s, for example, when video games were right were not doing well. And then, um, then when video games came back, along with you know the Mortal Kombat, the NBA Jam, and all that stuff, that it enabled um, the company to spin off Midway as a separate company. Um, uh, there was something in terms of SEC regulatory rules um, where the pinball part had to stay behind with um, WMS Gaming instead of going with Midway in order to make two separate companies because you had to have businesses that were in business for a certain number of years in order to be able to split them apart and the gaming company had not been in business hmm. long enough so that was an SEC rule you know if you want to do you want to split off a, you know a, a, and you know have a separate company with separate stock and that sort of thing and I'm not that familiar with all that sort of thing so that's part of the reason why the pinball went over there now there may be a other Savings or funny accounting things going on. I have no idea. I'm not going to make right. any kind of, of you know, judgment on that stuff. Right. right. Now, along with um, the the pinball side of things, the whole Waukegan plant went to WMS Gaming, and then um, that plant was making games for Midway under contract. Right. Um, so you know. There, there were some burdens there. For example, if Midway was, wasn't making games, a big chunk of the factory was idle. Right? So you had all that overhead. And that cost pinball. 
Yep, and I went on pinball's balance sheet. And that would charge against pinballs. Right. And again, I'm not an accountant. I don't know anybody. Right. That but it's stuff. making the pinball picture kind of artificially look worse than it is. It's looking a little bit bad. But on the other hand, you have to look at the facts, too. It, look, at, look at the numbers in terms of where um, sales of games were going. When I started at Williams in 92, um, they were cranking games out as fast as they could. You know, they 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 couldn't make them any faster, um, and that was part of the reaction for making that bigger plant up in in Waukegan. We don't want to be in the position where our competitors can actually fill in the gap for us. Right. Right. Part of the reason that some of those other games from um, uh, Premier and uh, Daddy East Sega uh, were able to sell as well as they were was because people couldn't get. Um, you know, the Adams Family or, or uh, Getaway or whatever that they wanted right. to buy from Williams because we couldn't, they just weren't available. You couldn't buy them. Um, and then you take a look at from that point to where all of a sudden um, the spiral started going down. Yeah, around some, 95, it right. things got bad. Right, and some of it was self-inflicted where we were discounting games. Right. right? And operators were getting into that habit of, oh, well, why should I buy this game new? If I wait three months, they're going to discount it. I can buy it for $1,000 off. Right. You know, and then that means they're going to buy the discounted game and not... And not, not the next and game. Not the next game, and, you know. So how was... Speaking of Cameco and Data East, how pissed were you guys at, at them? I mean, because, let's face it, a lot of their games were... Direct copies, feature and playfield design and whatever of Williams products. Oh, personally, um, personally, I, I I didn't care all that much. I mean, there, there were some annoyances. Like I remember when we showed the, um, the Lost in the Zone feature at the at the show in Las Vegas, um, and Jurassic Park was the game there, and all of a sudden, you know. A week later, Jurassic Park has system shutdown in it that looks an awful lot like Lost in the Zone. <laughs> you know, right. it's like, okay, well, you know, everybody who really knows what's going on can tell that it's, you know, can tell that it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's at least been inspired by... No, by I, I talked to somebody on. that worked there. We won't mention his name, but he said that Chemical would come in with, you know, a paper napkin... Say I want this feature. I saw this on a Williams game. I want this feature in our game. Yeah, and they'd be like, well, "We got our own ideas, you know, and we think they're better than that." No, 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 no. Uh -huh. Williams did it. We're doing it. Yeah. You know, that was you know his his opinion and his approach. And, you know, so that, I, I gotta imagine that that had to piss you guys off. There were some people at Williams that were pretty annoyed about the whole thing, um, but I'm sure it happens in a lot of under, other industries. You know, right. it's just that, you know, we're, pinball, coin ops, pretty small pond, you know, um, and, uh, you know, what can you do about it? Yeah. It's, well, there was a lot of lawsuits going back and forth between you guys and them, right? Were was, you guys trying to sue them a lot? No, I don't think a lot. There were some threats back and forth on some things, yeah, but, uh, you know, some of that stuff, you can't really, Yeah. you can't make that sort of thing stick. Well, what was something that did stick? Uh, well, the whole board system, the, the you know, didn't I you guys? Did, I mean, I that was before I, your time, before right? Before my time, I don't know right. anything about that. Right. So, I, you know, the, 
the copying part, you know... Nothing comes to mind, huh? I, like I said, there were some people who were very annoyed. You know, maybe Joe's strength is that he knows a good feature when he sees it. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, Keeps the lawyers busy. Right. <laughs> you know, I, you know, if you take a look at movies in Hollywood, you know, how many ideas are recycled. Right, there, right. You know, um toy industry, how many ideas get, sure. you know, back and forth. I mean, it's the same sort of thing that happens in a lot of places. It's but you guys didn't, you know, no lawsuits that you can think of that... There's, no, nothing that I was involved in there, no. Okay, okay. So now, when they shut down Pinball 2000, um, you know, what what part were you playing in that as far as, like, you know, did you have to, you know, on Black Monday, were you the one that had to tell everybody to go home? or? Well, hey, since, no, since I wasn't working in the pinball division, you know, I was getting my paycheck from WMS Gaming, not Williams Electronics. It, it didn't really affect me. Um, what I did do was um, try to talk to some people in, in on the gaming side in terms of here are, you know, here are these skilled engineers, um, you know, let's go interview them, you know, let's... Let's take you know. Let's take advantage of. So you try to get as many pinball guys as possible over on to your side. Right. Yeah. Come over to the dark side. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do you have your black helmet on and everything? <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't really work out all that well. There were a few people who made the transition from pinball over to over to gaming, and I hired a couple of software developers as as contractors for um, for a while. But those guys basically didn't want to do gaming, right? Not really, no. Yeah. Right. Was it hard to hire gaming programmers? I mean, uh, no, I don't think so. No. Um, I mean, were the slots done in the assembly language, or were they done in C? Or it's done in C plus plus. It was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not that hard to find. Uh, no, not really. No. Okay. okay. No, no. If you. Yeah. Well, how did you feel about the whole pinball two thousand? I mean, to you, was that a justified move on Williams' part? I think so. The problem that I couldn't figure out in my mind was how it would ever pay off. What do you right. mean? You mean how Pinball 2000 would pay right, off? Right, right. Because the development time was just too too long? You know, it, the the system itself is expensive, as everybody notes. You got the big monitor on there. you got expensive electronics. Um, the, uh, uh, the development time was longer. The development teams were bigger. You know, it was bad enough when we made the jump to uh, Dot Matrix, uh, where the first couple of Dot Matrix games, there was still just one programmer on a, on a game team, and that person would do the animations because the games weren't so anim animation heavy. Right. But toward, um, toward the heyday there, we would have two people per game. So all of a sudden, now your programming costs have doubled. Get two people programming a game. Um, as as Williams started getting a little bit leaner in the leaner years, as things started trailing off, they started trying to cut back and not put two people per game, like maybe one and a half, um, to do the programming. And there were a few games probably that there was one programmer who did all of the stuff, including the animations. Um, inclu yeah, including all the. So the animation programmers also could do. Regular game programming too. Right. Okay. So now you you go to Pinball 2000 
and yeah, you're doing a video game and a pinball game. Right, right, and it's not necessarily a video game, but it's pretty video intensive. Right, you know, you want to make it look nice, and you got backgrounds, you got stuff moving around on the screen. You, you know, you want stuff blowing up or reacting to the ball or right. however, um, and uh, you got this team full of artists now. We used to have one or two dot matrix artists, and now all of a sudden there's this whole art uh, art department full of animation artists with their 3D rendering tools and you know and all this stuff. Right. Um, and uh, so you know, just in terms of the development costs, it was going way up. So, did, were you privy at all to the Pinball 2000 development, you know, thing when like you know Lawler and Gomez came in with their Halo pin and all that stuff. Yeah, I saw the first. I saw one of the first demos on that, and it just blew me away. What about the Papadook version? How did you feel about the Papadook version of Pinball 2000? Um, well, the one I saw was simply a um, uh, baby Pac-Man-ish type thing. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah right. It was just a big video screen instead of a back box. Right. And I couldn't see that it it was anything beyond, you know, okay, I'm going to watch TV instead of. Play pinball. Play pinball. Right. 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 So you. So when those guys showed, you were in on that first meeting, huh? Well, not the first meeting. The very first meeting when they were showing it was only for the high, muckety muck type people. What they mean, the Nick Castro type guys? Yeah. Right, right. Right. But in one of the very early meetings, I saw the the little hollow pin mock up thing. Well, what was management's reaction to Pinball 2000? You know, the Nick Castro guys. Uh. Well, I don't know. I, I wasn't. I wasn't. I, I, I don't know specifically. I can remember meetings before then and sitting in on some meetings um, that I was invited to, where um, Neil DeCastro would say, "It's up to you guys to to save pinball. What are you going to do to save it?" Right. And that was prior to um, Pat and George. Um, coming up with this idea that they were working on. Because, you know, there's this vicious rumor that when the Castro saw Pinball 2000, that he was pissed. That he saw the potential of it, and that they were already moving down this path to basically shelve Pinball and kick it out the door. And here, you know, he gives these guys a challenge, and they meet the challenge. Oh. They I, beat the challenge. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, okay. I don't know any right. evidence of that. Okay. I don't know of any. It's just a rumor, you know. You know, so you know, I was just curious if you, you know, because you know there was a whole set of circumstances that seemed like you know pinball was for whatever reason they were really they wanted to do the gaming thing and pinball was just you know they couldn't get rid of it fast enough you know like when they raised the price of the Star Wars five hundred bucks got all the European orders canceled through the exchange rate. Mm. You know, that, that you know, oh, look, you know, we, we can't sell those. You know, it's another reason, another nail in the coffin type thing. Well, you can look at it that way. On the other hand, there are realities of making any kind of a product. And I don't want to be an apologist for, yeah, for, what, they for, did, for, yeah. for what they did or anything, but there are certain economic realities. You know, whether you're making toasters or pinball games, you want to make a certain profit margin. Right. And if you're not making that profit margin, why, why are you in the business? Unless you know, it really you you really get excited about. But doing pinball it. was making money right then. A little bit. Well, yeah, but that was better than the last two years prior to that. They right. were losing. They're spending ten million dollars a year on pinball. Okay, to make how much? Eleven million 
$12 million, they could put that same $10 million into the, the gaming side and probably make $50 million out of it. All right. Okay? What would you do if it was your $10 million? Well, but the resources are all there. I mean, you're still going to have the same resources in the slot machine division. It's not like when they close Pinwall, you know, all of a sudden, you know, department, WMS gaming department uh, budgets all went up, right? Well, they hired more people, yeah. They did? Yeah. Okay, so you're saying that that was a cost, that they, they couldn't realize it. You know, to me, I, I don't see why those two things couldn't live peacefully and next to each other. You know what I mean? Well, it's possible, but again, I would challenge you, if you take a look, use your 2020 hindsight goggles yeah, right yeah. now. All right, did the pinball market come back? If, if, if Williams had stayed, you know, for the last eight years, now seven and a half, Right, since they shut it down, they'd stay in business. Same, would they still, you know? Wait, would they? Would it all of a sudden have bounced back? I, you know, I don't see that that um, Stern is is cranking out. You know, Actually, Stern seems to be doing okay. Well, they're they're doing okay for a very small market, right? right. But not the kind of market that Williams was doing. Yeah, because Williams had to make whatever fifty thousand games a year to break even or whatever it was. Yeah, whatever the number was. Whatever the number to, was. In order to be able to do it. Williams is a publicly held company. Stern is private. Right. right. They don't have to. So Stern doesn't have to answer to their stockholders. Now Stern does a lot of things a lot better than Williams did. They have a smaller factory. They know how to do small runs. Um, Williams, the only way they ever got things done was, oh, we have to do a minimum run of 3,000 games. Right. You know, and they would jam those 3,000 games down their distributors' throats. Got to take these. Right. We bought the parts for them. You know. Um, they couldn't do a, you know, like when they did Adam's Family Gold, they probably lost money on those. Why did they do Adam's Family Gold? They need, there was a hole in the line. They didn't have a game ready. Oh, really? That was the only reason? Yeah. Huh. Was it more expensive than regular Adam's Family? Only because it was a smaller run. Okay. Right? Um, so that you don't have economy of scale. Right. And the, they their factory was just not set up for how do we get it ramped up real fast, Get these things going, you know, and then and then turn off. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, the reason why I said that is because you know, pinball in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, especially look at the parts thing. You know, like, why did they sell the parts to Gene, Gene Cunningham? It beats me. Okay, because to me, it's almost like, okay, we've got Novus Germany interested. We got. Betson's interested. We've got Ice in Buffalo interested. And then we've got Gene Cunningham, a guy that lives a little bit south, both physically and otherwise, maybe. Uh, you know, he's basically a collector with deep pockets. Let's sell to him, opposed to selling to one of these other, you know, partners in crime, as it may be, you know, distributors or competing companies or, or whatever, it's almost like they, they wanted to sell it to somebody they knew couldn't make a lot of money on it so that they could show their stockholders, look, we got rid of pinball, it was a good thing. Well, I don't know. I don't know whether that's No opinion on that? No, I don't. I, I, if, if there were any other people interested in buying any of that stuff, I'm not aware of it. I so that's information I don't have. Well, and, you know, we talked to Trudeau, mm -hmm. and Trudeau actually got hired by ICE mm -hmm. because ICE was buying pinball mm -hmm. from Williams. 
And, you know, then that's what, why Trudeau got, got hired there, and he was working on pinball at ICE, and they were basically taking over everything. And then, you know, ICE got fed up with dealing with Williams because it became obvious, at least to Trudeau, that, that what they were getting in their purchase from Williams wasn't really what they needed to make games. You know, okay. it wasn't, it wasn't valuable enough, and ICE pulled the plug after, you know, after a couple months. So, I don't know. I wasn't involved in any of the, those yeah. decisions. Those were not at my level. Gotcha. I it it puzzled me why when Williams shut the the place down, or shut down pinball, that they actually didn't keep somebody on staff who actually understood um, where everything was was kept. You know, CAD files, um, inventory, um, understood what was valuable in terms of. Um, of any kind of intellectual property. I mean, nobody was once once they said goodbye to those people, they were gone, and all the deals were done by the by the legal team at at Williams, who, as far as I could tell, didn't really understand the value of, let's say, um, you know, software. Yeah, Gene uh, pulls up with a pickup truck. They throw all that stuff in the back, and away he goes with it flopping yeah. around in the back. It's kind of right. like a, yeah. you know, I mean, as silly as it may sound, it's probably not all that far from the truth. Right. So I have <laughs> no idea. I don't know whether yeah. there was there was any sort of um, planned, you know, intentional villainy right. on on Williams' part, or it was ineptitude. Okay, but it, you know, it it's puzzling to me. But I'm not. I, I have right. no idea. Right, and you're not. It don't sound like you're a conspiracy theory type kind of guy. No, no. <laughs> well, the thing is that you know most conspiracy conspiracies, uh, you know, as long as soon as two people know, the cat gets out of the bag somehow. So who killed Kennedy? Just so we know. Right. Well, you know, it's just like it's just like home roms. You, you know, you give it as soon as you give it to one person. Eventually, the cat's out of the bag. All right. So, you know... I, well, you kept I, the devil man thing under control for a while. Yeah. You know, you did a pretty good job on that. Yeah. You know? Threatening, you know, whatever. Dismemberment. <laughs> <laughs> I made no threats. <laughs> I know. Just kidding. Just kidding. Well, okay, so now we're... How long did you stay at gaming? I left in August of 2000. August of 2000. Okay. So I, I stayed for almost another year after... Um, after pinball was shut down, and you went to Cisco. Yeah. And now, why? Why did you make that jump? Uh, well, I need another job. <laughs> oh, you mean you mean? Yeah, I. The project that I was working on, which was the this new platform, new operating system platform for a, a new gaming uh, product line, it was pretty evident that upper management wasn't really behind it in terms of getting all the teams together with the, the hardware and the electronics. Um, you can see some of some of the results of it, probably none of, none of the work that I was working on, but at least the physical design in some of the very latest slots that they have on the floor now. Um, but at the time, it was... I don't know where their heads were, but um, so, sort of harkens back to my comment about ineptitude. It's, it's possible that they just weren't weren't concentrating on what's the next important thing. They were they were counting their money on on. Hey, look at this. We're selling this this current platform, versus oh, we need to be able to grow into this, you know, right. to, to the next generation. So uh, we weren't getting the support from it. We were getting a little burnt out, and uh, so we decided to we decided to move on. My my team 
Oh, so your whole team left? Yeah, my whole team left. So your whole team went from WMS to Cisco? Um, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, who'd you bring with you? Uh, Bill Grupp. Okay. And Cameron Silver. Okay. And Tom Uban. Well, Tom was, is Tom still here? No. No? No. Um, and, uh, two, uh, well, one other person was working on that project with me, um, who, who was with gaming, and he, he, he hasn't. He hasn't done any pinball stuff. Right. Uh, came over. And uh, it just so happens that Tom Uban used to work with some of the people who um, uh, we work with now at Cisco. And through a long, convoluted relationship, um, we were able to start up a development office here in Chicago. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I actually hired Tom a couple years ago to do something, I, I was I had a Peppy Williams Peppy the Clown, mm-hmm. and he uses this old tape system for the music because the game's from like '56, and um, I wanted to replace it with something digital, mm-hmm. and so I asked Duncan, and Duncan's like, "You should talk to Tom." Mm-hmm. I said, "Why?" He goes, "I hear he's really bored at Cisco. He'll <laughs> 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 do this for you," and he, and he did. He, I mean, it was amazing what he did. Yeah. You know. Um, he made, you know, basically an MP3 player, you know, just for this coin-operated game. Uh-huh. You know, and, it, and it's it's great. I mean, it, what he did was just actually pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he he liked designing it. He didn't like making them, though. Mm-hmm. That was the whole thing, you yeah. know. Because he did it all surface mount, and, and he was actually doing the surface mounting himself. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, yeah, he just he wasn't so much into that part of it. But you could tell that he enjoyed, you know, yeah. the whole design aspect of it. Right. But the actual, you know, soldering and stuff, he, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he wasn't so into. So, seemed like a nice guy, though. I mean, yeah. incredibly smart, mm-hmm. almost intimidatingly yeah. smart, you know. He, I, I found it sometimes hard to talk to him, you know, that I I, I always felt stupid after every conversation with him. Oh, well, Tom's <laughs> a really bright guy. Yeah, yeah, really smart, really smart guy. And he was basically the guy that wrote all the... Pinball 2000 stuff too, right? You know all the operating system stuff. Right? Yeah, he was the he was the chief architect for the the operating system right. in, in Pinball 2000. Right, right. So yeah, so you were saying that they poured their heart and souls into Pinball 2000. Right. The people who were working on that really wanted to make Pinball work again. It, you know that was the fun part about working at Williams. It wasn't just a job over there. It was really um, everybody was so passionate about everything that they did. When I first got there, I couldn't believe how much fun it was. I couldn't believe they were paying me to work there. So even though I took a cut in pay, you know, right. I, it was like I couldn't wait to get there because some, you know, I might. So the seventy-hour weeks didn't bother you? No, no. You know, when I was working at AT and T and then Memorex Telex, there were days where I'd get up in the morning and I'd go, "Well, let's see, how many personal days do I have left? Can I take, <laughs> right. take the day off?" And here, you, when I was working at Williams, even when I was feel a little under the weather, it's like, no, I better go in, I might miss something. Right. Because when I got there, we had, um, I think, six design teams, all in different stages, and they're all working on something, so there was always something new to see every day. We were playing, you know, Doctor Who at the bottom of the stairs, and, and then uh, at lunch, and then and uh, running back up, up the stairs and telling uh, Bill Futzenruder, you know, Hey, we have this idea, or you know, this this one scoring seems out of balance, and you know, or whatever. 
And uh, at the end of the day, it would be like, well, I could get one more thing done on my game. I don't really have to go home yet. Maybe if I just pop some popcorn, you know, right. add a soda out of the out of the pop machine, you know, I could stay another hour before I had to go home and get dinner kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it wasn't surprising that when, you know, the Pinball 2000 part rolled around, everybody took it really, really seriously in terms of how can we, how can we take the cost out of this thing? Yeah, I yeah. noticed like uh, flipper links or, or flipper paws. Yeah. You know, there used to be in WPC a right and a left. Mm -hmm. Well, in Pinball 2000, there's just one. Yeah. The right and left is is interchangeable. Yeah. You know, so there's one less part. Right. You know what I mean? And and, and it's also easier for operators because they have to buy one part and it services both the right and the left side. Right. You know, which I thought was great. And if you look on how it's implemented, you know, in the hardware, it, it, you know, it's obviously well thought out. Yeah. And the whole interchangeable play field thing, you right. know, cool idea. I, I don't know about from a money-making standpoint how that would work, but... Yeah, that part of, part of the problem... That part of the equation was more of an experiment, since it really didn't co cost us anything to do. And I shouldn't say us, it was them, because I was working in gaming. Um, the part, of the mark, uh, part of the economic model that works for pinball is the trade-in value. And without a cabinet, you can't trade in a pinball very well, right. right? For like for the whole market. But on the other hand, one of the advantages of being able to do the swapping play field is if you've got an operator who's got six or seven... Um, games on location, if you can get them to buy an eighth play field, or her, and the operator has to be a female, um, that's one for the shop that you can take back to the shop, get all serviced, change the light bulbs, new, new rubbers, get it all nice and clean, and then take it out to flip a location. Flip it in. Flip it in. Now you've rotated your game. It's a lot easier than moving the whole game. Right. But it's all serviced. You flip it right in. It takes just a few minutes to swamp it. Right. You take the dirty play field back to the shop and do it again and take it to the next location. Right, you just keep rotating. You know, yeah. right? Or, you know, you got the spare play field there for when a game does go out of service. Oh, crud, this um, one piece that that's very specific that it's going to take two weeks for, for my uh, distributor to get in. You know, not going to keep my Revenge from Mars down the whole right, time because I could flip, could, this, flip, flip this other play field. Right. So that's sort of, that sort of thought to put in, as long as it doesn't cost you a lot of extra money, makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, we we interviewed operators. We interviewed I shouldn't say we again. They interviewed operators. They talked to distributors. What are kinds of problems? Like one of the big service calls is stuck balls. Right. That's a lot of money to waste just to go out and stick a ball. Right. And that's why there's the extra key, so you can take the glass off without being able to get to the money. Right. So you can leave that key with the location owner and be able to get the ball unstuck. Right. You know. So it's all that kind of thought that went into it that I thought was really interesting. You know, um, the you know the, the you know not only the whole concept of Pinball 2000 that there's all this stuff that you can do with it and believe me that you the two games that got done on it are, are almost they just scratch the surface right? right think in terms of some of the very first solid state games versus games that came out a year or two later you know you compare a hot tip to to a firepower right you know, and you see that there's a huge difference in potential using the same types of electronics and whatever system you have the same thing on pinball 2000 it's not just a game with video um, you know Think of being able to light up different parts of the playfield and reveal them and not reveal them. 
you know, because of the, the partially tinted glass. Right. Um, uh, think about, uh, you know, what if you had, what if you still had a Rudy head on the play field, but now when you hit him in the head, you know, little stars go flying around his head. Right, you right. Know? So you kind of blend both the mechanical and the and the video aspect. Of right, you give Rudy a black eye. Right. Literally. Right. I mean, well, you know, well, whatever. Right, right. And uh, so, and then there were lots of, there was lots of other thought. You were talking about reducing the cost. Um, one of the things to reduce the cost on the game, they were going to tool the bottom arch. It was going to be injection molded right. bottom arch. So that it would cost pennies uh, by the time they were done. Um, that glass, uh, Pete Petrovsky, uh, who was a designer at, at Williams, came up with a nifty idea to, to re drastically reduce the cost of that glass. It's partially mirrored. Right. And instead he... Um, did, he, he was talking with some glass company where it actually doesn't need to be mirrored, it only really needs to be tinted. And they came up with a way, he had a, I think he had um, prototypes of this, where it was tinted from, um, from clear to dark, you know, a, across the stretch of the, of, of the thing. Hmm. So not only is it, is it a lot cheaper to manufacture, because you're not putting that um, uh, yeah. metalized layer on there, but it, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have as much problem with scratching Right stuff. So there was a lot of other thought that was going into all of all of that. Hmm. Um, you know, so a lot of people look at it and they're armchair quarterbacks, and they don't understand a lot of the stuff that just hadn't gotten done yet. Right. Pinball 2000. On the other hand, the reality of the system is it, like like I mentioned before, a lot of money to develop a game on that, um, just from the number of people you have to hire to to push all the pixels around on the display. Did you ever play Wizard Box? Yes, I did. Did you like it? Um, it, w it was very... The concept of it was very good, um, but what was actually implemented, I mean, it was, it was very embryonic at the time. So, you know, yeah, nice playfield layout. Um, the, as, as Pat waves his hands and points at things, and this is going to do that, and that's going to do that, and you fill it in with your imagination, that's nice. But you know, in terms of it being any kind of a game, it's, you can't make it a a, a, a judgment on it or not. But too it, early in the process. It, right, too early. But that's that's one of the ones where Pat was experimenting with ideas of like lighting up different parts of the playfield and using baffles to shield off different areas. Right. You know, to to reveal and 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 hide different parts. But that thing it just is not didn't get too far. I mean, because there's some people talking about you know Gene or the Australian guy or that talking about you know they want to sell Wizard Blocks. Yeah, that's not a game yet. Yeah, it's yeah. not a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Gene seems to think it is. You know, and well, I don't know the guy in Australia's opinion, but yeah. you know he allegedly bought 25 whatever you know pinball 2000s and he's gonna. You know, turn them into wizard blocks oh, or something. Okay. You know, but you know, whatever that means. Yeah, well, good for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, back to that whole why did William sell the gene? That same equation could be applied. Also, not to kind of go back on the conspiracy theory thing again, but why did they sell to Mr. Australia? Kind of the same self-fulfilling. You know, we don't want pinball to look like it's doing well. It, you know it, what I mean? It could be, and it you know, 
Who yeah, knows? But it right? could also be that Williams just didn't care. Right. Either. I don't really know. I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah, and they just may not. You know, I guess it's money, and Gene's money is as green as anybody else's, right? Yeah. Yeah, true. Okay. All right, well, thank you, Ted. All right, you're welcome. All right. Again, I want to thank Ted Estes for coming on our show and talking to us. We really greatly appreciate his time, and uh, we had a lot of fun with it. And until next time, I hope to see you again on TopCast.